Welcome to Murder in the Black with Steph and MD. Welcome back to Murder in the Black. It is your host, Steph. And I'm MD. And Merry Christmas, you guys. Merry Christmas. Okay. You know, I mean, I can't <laughs> help it. You know, those songs, just lyrics just pop in my head. Obviously. But, you know, Merry Christmas, guys. We're excited about this holiday season, and we have some fun stuff for you today. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know about fun, you know what I'm saying, but we definitely... <laughs> Have <laughs> a true crime. You have to see my face right now. I'm all like, yes, it yeah. is fun. A true true crime. crime is fun. Yeah, we got true crime in store. So let's go ahead and get started. Grab your coffee if it's the morning or your wine if it's the evening. But either way, let's get into it. All right. So our case today, uh, both of our cases are listener suggestions. And I will shout y'all's names out at the end. Uh, but you know who you are. So we got a... Um, a case suggestion for the case of, Sh- I'm saying Charmaine Linton, but that's the victim's mother. His name is LJ, and I don't believe his last name is Linton, but we'll get into that. But let's go ahead and do a couple of random facts about Miramar, Florida, which I never heard of Miramar, Florida, outside of this case. So it is in Boward County because they have counties. Because they in the South, most Southern people do, or parishes. Shout out to Louisiana. And they are, they have a dense sub suburban feel, right? So very much a suburban city, okay? Okay. Um, they have a lot of parks. Most people who live there own their homes. So shout out to y'all. Um, I, that's the random fact that popped up in Google. Um, okay. Most people that live their own. I think that's a good thing. I think it is. And I think it's very admirable. So this is like a, a really upscale type thing. Upscale, know. yeah. It's a, definitely an upscale. Nice area. Low crime rate. Not a lot of things happen there. It's the third largest city in B- Boward County. So, I mean, it's pretty popular. Okay. Yeah. And so they, what happened in this pretty popular county? Well, something very unfortunate happened. And I can almost guarantee that a lot of you probably either heard of this case or you've seen this case in your social media feed at one point or another, because this actually happened in 2023. So LJ, whose name is Lennon Latham, that is his last name, Latham, and he's a junior. He is 18 years old in 2023. And his mother is, I mean, in love with her son. She, I mean, I feel like she's the epitome of like her, her child was her first love, her first born, her, her everything. Right. Right. And her twin because he looks just like her. Oh, I mean, she spit him out and she's gorgeous. So like, just imagine when you see the photos it all makes sense, but like literally it's just her in male form and it just, it just, you know, 
copied so nicely. It doesn't always. It doesn't do always that. do that. So you know, but, but it, it did. did in this case. Absolutely, absolutely. So okay, so LJ, just to give you kind of a brief description about who he was, he was an ambitious kid. He led others well. Um, he was very selfless, kind-hearted would give away the shirt on his back. And I feel like we hear that a lot, but I think it's important to just highlight those individuals. It's not a lot of people because I think you can be kind, but not give away the shirt on your back or give away your last, right? Like, but LJ was the true definition of like, if even if that means I don't have it, you got it. Cause I want to make sure that you're good. So I, I think that's a very good character trait to have especially in someone young because you know a lot of times we can be a little selfish when we're younger but that just was not the case for LJ so he was very close to his parents as I've said before he was the first born and so he just I think you know self-borns they self-borns first-borns tend to have a um a leadership quality about them because they, you know, they had to take care of their brothers and sisters. And in this case, his brothers and sisters were, they were significantly younger than him, you know, not his sister so much, but definitely his younger brother. So he was a high school. He had a 3.9 GPA. Shout out to that 3.9. My God. And he knew exactly what he wanted to do when he graduated from high school. He wanted to go ahead and become a pilot. And he actually would go out on various excursions with other pilots to learn how to fly and learn everything about aviation. I mean, it was something that was in him when he was younger. And his mother completely supported his dreams, always bragging on him on social media as we tend to do as parents, just, you know, wanting to highlight all the good things that our children, that they do. So on a night in April, nothing was out of the ordinary. LJ went to his mom and said, hey, mom, I'm just going to go out with one of my friends who she knew of because this was actually his best friend. And he told his mom, I'll, you know, I'll be back, gave her a kiss on the forehead. And she didn't worry about a lot when it came to LJ, actually. Like, he was that mature teen. He was responsible, and, and she trusted him because they had that type of relationship where I, I know you're going to do what I, I've asked you to do because you've shown that that's what you that that's the kind of kid that you are very wise and mature and responsible right and so this night was very reminiscent of other nights and his mother I want to highlight the relationship between his mother and the best friend they knew each other he came over the house frequently they ate dinner together she fed this boy they even went on vacations together yeah I mean it was very much in the tradition of a high school best friend knowing your family and just becoming like a friend of the family. So his curfew was midnight. He goes out and his mother is texting him throughout the night, something they always do. But as his curfew time started to get closer, edge closer and closer, she texts him and said, Hey, you know, where are you? Are you on your way home? And he didn't text back totally out of the ordinary. And I think if you are, I'll come back to that. I'll circle back to my point there. But so he it's out of the ordinary. So Charmaine actually calls his best friend. That's her first reaction. And she's like, hey, you know, where is LJ? He's not picking up my picking up my phone calls. He's not texting me back. And his friend tells her, oh, you know, he just went to the bathroom. I'll have him call you when he comes back. So she says, okay, but she's still not at peace. Right. But she kind of just lets it go. But. 
it gets closer and closer to midnight. He's still not picking up the phone, still not responding. And so she looks at the find, you know, find me part of the iPhone where you can actually track down someone's location. And she sees that LJ is driving close to her home. Like, so she's thinking, okay, maybe he's going to, you know, come to the house. But something told her to screen record as the car is trailing down the street. And she doesn't, she says she didn't know what it was, but it was just something instinctively that she felt like, okay, I need to just go ahead and screen record this. But as the car gets closer to the house, they drive right past her home. And she's even further confused. And this car drives to the best friend's home. And instead of going to sleep and just kind of brushing it off and just saying, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe he just decided to spend the night at his friend's house. This is not like him. So she packs up her stuff, goes to the park first, because this park is a place where LJ and his best friend hang out often. And so it was kind of like the first place that she thought to go to just to check around and see. Nothing's there. She drives to the best friend's home. And she sees that all the lights are off and she's blowing up both LJ and the best friend's phone and trying to get somebody to pick up. No one picks up. So I don't know. And it's not clear in the media how long it took her. I'm assuming the very next day, but it could have been that same night. No, I think it was that same night. She was able to wake him up. Um, and he tells her that, you know, we, I looked for him, I couldn't find him. No, I'm not talking about I looked for him, I couldn't find him. But the aspect of the police getting involved. I oh, don't know if they got okay. involved that night or if they got involved the very next day. Well, technically, it was it was the next day, right? Because this was at 12.30 in the morning when she finally, you know, it was after 12.30 because his curfew was 12.30. And so after his curfew, she went to the house. And I, I mean, based on what, her, what she said, she did call the police on her way back to look for him. So they go out and they begin to search for LJ. He was last seen at this park, according to um, the cops, that's where he last was. And they go ahead and start looking for him. Not only do media, local media get involved, but also other government agencies got involved in this search. And they don't find anything for three days. And I want to say that they looked at this park and in the area of this park, we don't know how far the distance, there was a lake. And they looked in the lake and by the lake, but they found nothing for three days. However, on the third day, the end of the day, they found LJ's body in the lake. And of course, they took his body to the ME, which is the medical examiner for an autopsy. And the ME said there was no foul play suspected at all that LJ died from a accidental drowning and law enforcement closed the case. To them, the case was closed. However, the family really felt like Something else happened. His mother, and I'm saying the family, but I'm focusing and centering your focus on his mother, Charmaine. She really felt like a lot of this just did not feel right from the onset. One of the things that she brought media 
our attention to was the fact that LJ was a really good swimmer. And she just didn't, she felt uneasy about the fact that he would drown. He was such a good swimmer that he actually taught his little brother who was a toddler how to swim. He was an excellent swimmer. So the fact that he drowned just didn't seem right. The other indication that something wasn't right was because according to this best friend, which I'm not going to name, the best friend said that when she called him and LJ was no longer responding to her messages, he said to her that LJ was using the bathroom and would call her later. But during this time, once the police were involved and they then questioned this young man, he said that him and LJ did go to the park. They were at the park. But that at some point, he and LJ were in the car and LJ looked at his phone, got upset about something and exited the vehicle and he could no longer find him. Leaving his phones behind. Leaving his phone behind. And he said he then got out of his car to try to search for him, but he couldn't locate him. And when Charmaine saw the car going down the street towards her home, eventually passing her home and then going towards the house, at some point, it is believed that that's when he went home and told his parents. And his parents then went to the park and started to search for LJ at the park with him. So all the while not calling Charmaine. I mean, I was going to I was going to wait to the end for that. But that is a fact. They didn't call Charmaine, they didn't talk to her about it. They simply did that on their own. So according to the best friend, this is what happened. Not only that, but these same people that was his best friend, his parents, they did not offer any condolences to the family. They never came by and said, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. You know, you know, like, let me stand in the gap for you. I know this is such a terrible thing that happened, right? So she just feels like those three things that I've, I've mentioned were the biggest issues for Charmaine. She felt like something wasn't right and somebody's not telling the truth. And they were able to lay him to rest um, in 2023. He was just a month away from graduating and really fulfilling all of his dreams. He had a beautiful um, ceremony. They laid him to rest. A lot of his classmates came and um, gave their testimonies to how he was just such a beautiful spirit. And it's just such a sad story. It's a very short story, but a very sad story sad story and Charmaine Fenton continues to advocate that the police reopen this case because she believes strongly that foul play was involved and that's the end of that case I mean don't worry we got another one for you but I want to briefly talk about my (laughs) I want to talk about my issues with this case because there is no real takeaway here because it's so short and condensed and we just don't know a whole lot of information But the first thing for me that just really bothers me about this case, and I want to say, and to be fair, you can be an excellent swimmer and still drown. Just want to say that that is facts. You can be an excellent swimmer and still drown. But my biggest issue, and I can understand why his mother feels like that's very hard to believe. Maybe he was choked or something happened. I understand that. But just factually, you can be a great swimmer and almost drown. I'm a living testament. Um, 
had a friend. We were in my parents' pool, and she was drowning, and I tried to go save her because I've been swimming since I was five, and she almost took me under, okay? It can happen. <laughs> it can happen. But um, I think the biggest thing for me is that he, the best friend, lied about him being in the bathroom. That's that's my first issue. Like, why would he lie about that? Then I take issue with the fact that the parents, once they found out that if this all things being fair and let's say everything happened exactly how the best friend mentioned, then why is it that you wouldn't call Charmaine and say, hey, like we can't find LJ. We don't know where he is. We're on our way. Do you want us to pick you up? What do you what do you what do you want to do? This is your child that you had. What do you want us to do? Because I'm so temperamental about things like that that I could have a group of my daughter's friends with me. And I'm like, hey, I have to go to my son's soccer game. Is it okay for me to transport your child with me to the soccer game? Because that's how deep that is. That is somebody's whole child. And so you have to check in. To see if it's okay. And the fact that LJ was missing and you didn't call his mom? Yeah, something in the water ain't clean for sure when it comes to this situation. And it's just so, it's so sad because Charmaine is looking for answers. And then the other question that I had that I haven't been able to find in the media is instinctively I was like, did an autopsy come out did she do a second autopsy by independent medical examiner but see because when you do that and I, I don't think she has because when you do that you they can sometimes having that uh, another objective opinion can lead to other conclusions which may lead to law enforcement being able to reopen the case and so so far what we do know is that that didn't happen um, but you know, that's just my thinking. So you guys, you know, be sure to check in with us. Tell us what you think when it comes to this very, very short case about, um, LJ gotta know what you think, because this is definitely a situation that had me just like scratching my head and just come up with theories about what could have possibly happened. MD, what do you think about the case? The case is very heartbreaking, and listening to the mom describe her loss of her son, the pain is palpable, like watching it. It's very difficult as a mother to watch another woman who is a mother express her pain, and I really just think what's harder than anything for not just, you know, Charmaine, but also for, you know, parents who have missing children or parents who just never get the answers to what happened with their child is the lack of knowledge. And I think that pain compounds on top of Charmaine's pain of my my son is dead, but on top of that, I don't know how my son, I don't believe that I really know how my son really died. And that just adds a, a, an entire different layer of pain. Uh, and so it, it's definitely a very heartbreaking case. I think for me, like you, the biggest area of just the tension 
is the fact that the parents knew and did not involve her, did not call her. And we're this is 2023. We're still in 2023. I want to just be very clear about the time that this case happened. This boy had a cell phone. He never had to leave the park and go home and tell his parents he could not find LJ. He could have called his parents. Mom, Dad, I can't find LJ. And I, I don't think, I, have a, I don't have an issue with him calling his parents first because I think that when you're young, you know, your first thought is I need help and you need help from your parents. Yeah, I mean, you would never. I mean, I totally get that. Yeah. But, you know, then you're like, but dang, you as a parent, you didn't think. That's why, and, and that's why I was going to, because that's, that's why you hone in on the parents, mm-hmm. because really, okay, let's say the best friend just really just didn't have it all together. That's fine. You're a child. But parents, for you, and when you hear the mom talk about it, that's what she hones in on, too. And I think for any adult, whether you have kids or not, you can relate to that. Like, come on, of course you would call the parents. And and why did he drive home? It just adds this, something's not right. Something happened, something foul happened. And I don't even know if I want to say that, like, there was malicious intent behind whatever foul thing happened. It could have been some accidental thing. But instead of him calling the, his parents and his parents calling her, now we'll never know. You know, and so it's just layered in a bunch of confusion. And so it's just really heartbreaking. And so my heart goes out to Charmaine and her family and those that lost such a, you know, young. Beautiful soul. Absolutely. I mean, he was was such a... um... I mean, his smile was infectious, and his and his character went before him. It superseded him even at eighteen years old, which you for sure couldn't say that about me at eighteen. I don't think. But yeah, you know. So shout out to Charmaine. Keep the good fight. I I hope that even our coverage of this case brings some awareness in our community. And you know, I had read this scripture verse uh, recently about friendships, and man. They can really be wolves in sheep's clothing, truly. And when you're 18, you don't think about that. It's just not even a thought, you know. You just don't think that people would do that. So that's that. Let's go ahead and get to our next case, which is another listener suggestion. It is about George Russell. So Let me give you a little background about who George Russell is. George Russell was born in Florida in 1958. His parents were married at the time that he was born, but shortly after he, after his mom gave birth to him, they separated and she and and George ended up staying with his mother up until the age of 16 because she then went to go live with her new husband. So at the age of 16, he was forced to live with his, you know, um, to, to go live with his stepfather, uh, who later on remarried another woman. And it's really interesting because I don't, it's not clear from the research that why George did not stay with his mom and instead stayed with his stepfather. So she remarries, he goes and lives with them. And then they divorce. 
And instead of him going to live with his mom, he stays with his stepfather. His stepfather then gets remarried. So now he's living with his stepfather and his stepmother. Okay, so nuanced situation. And, but this, is, this was his living arrangement. And so he lived with them, you know, for the remainder of his young, younger childhood, but ended up getting kicked out because he was having inappropriate fascinations about his stepmother. And you're like, well, how did anybody know? Because he started to act out on those inappropriate fascinations. He would watch her take baths and look at her when she was sleeping. And it was just really creepy. And so the stepmother and the stepfather were like, you're going to have to go because this isn't highly inappropriate. And so he ends up being kicked out and um, just kind of, it doesn't say where he went, but we do know that he began to get involved with the law. Like he began to just kind of have his, his in and outs with law enforcement, just breaking into things, theft, you know, just that general, just petty stuff in the beginning. And then around 1971, he was still in high school and he ended up getting in trouble for truancy. And so truancy, if you don't know, it means you're not showing up to school. And here in the state of Texas, if you get, if your child doesn't go to school, not only can the kid get in trouble, but the parents can also get in trouble. Well, in this case, in 1971, George was found guilty of truancy. And so they, his punishment was to go work at the Mercer Island Police Station. And so he began to kind of have this fantasy of being a police officer. And he used that to his advantage to win women over. Like, hey, I'm a police officer. I'm undercover. And so he would go around to different cocktail lounges and bars in Seattle, because now he's actually, he found himself in Seattle, and he would hook up with people using the persona that he was an undercover police officer or he was an undercover or a, just generally a cop. And this in lies how George becomes a serial killer. Steph, why don't you tell us what happened? So this takes place in Bellevue, Washington, which is just east of Seattle. And at least, well, it, it's a very tech-savvy city, by the way, including Bellevue. Um, but it's a private Bellevue, Washington in general, as also another place. Um, and this was not done intentionally, but it's another city that has a low crime rate. And it's a very private community. So in the summer of 1990 women were coming up deceased. And on Saturday, November 23rd, um, an employee was out walking behind the building trying to, you know, dump out trash. And he stumbles upon a body of a young woman. Now, the victim was lying amongst the trash. She was nude and didn't have anything on except for a necklace. And she was positioned very intentionally. She looked like she was lying in a coffin and she had a pine cove in her hands, like her hand was grasping this pine cove. Located amongst her body or near her body was a black hair. And when investigators went out to, you know, bag her body and figure out who it was, they noticed this black hair and they went ahead and collected it because they felt like 
I mean, this may be trash, but there may be something here too. So let's just go ahead and bag this as well. But no other clues were found. So investigator Marvin Skeen um, was the lead detective and he began to ask questions and really seek for the public's assistance because, I mean, a guy that had no evidence. So the medical examiner did the autopsy and they found out that the victim was between 25 to 35 years old. She was beaten, strangulated, and also had been sexually assaulted. There were dozens of fibers um, on her body. Uh, not fibers, but puncture wounds on her body. And they couldn't, they could really couldn't figure that out. So they also decided to go ahead and, I'm sorry, y'all, it is fibers. I'm like over here reading my own notes like, oh girl, what was you trying to say right there? Okay. So it was fibers recovered on her body and they were actually carpet fibers once they were able to identify it. And they went ahead and went ahead and analyzed the black hair um, that they collected and they realized that through a pigmentation test that it belonged to an African-American man. So I'm guessing that the hair was a little kinky and not in the way that us black people are saying, <laughs> you know, when we say kinky, y'all mean kinky, kinky, but like, you know, our hair is curly and it's coily. That's what I mean. So they found that, you know, they had this African-American hair. Okay. So that the, the perp might be a african-american man but that's kind of where it ended because they didn't know who it was and they put out like an apb so to speak to figure out if there were any missing people in the bellevue area and they came up with nothing and the public really in the that area really didn't help either because they didn't know as well but that was until they received a break because a neighboring jurisdiction had a woman who came forward and said, you know, my roommate has been missing for a couple of days. And so the Bellevue Police Department went out and they talked to this young lady and they found out through identifying her through the pictures that were found or the body that was found on scene that it was indeed her roommate, 27-year-old Mary Ann Polwright. And that one necklace that she was wearing her roommate was able to definitively say that it actually belonged to her that Mary Ann had borrowed it well you know going out that night she said that Mary Ann was not necessarily a partier but she was a person who liked to go out and have a good time and so she last saw her three nights earlier and she was preparing to go out for for the evening now Mary Ann spent her Fridays out at a bar a few blocks away from where the at the body was found. She was a free spirit. She loved dancing and she was a hard worker. So she, you know, she just went out to just like blow off some steam, do what she usually does. But the one thing her roommate said is that she would not go with a stranger. And MD, I just, I'm going to ask you just this question. You know, what do you think about when you hear people who are talking about a victim or just a person they may be living or not? But I often see it in true crime cases where they're saying they would absolutely not, you know, and they speak these definitive statements. I mean, do you think you could ever truly know a person? No, you can't. And Steph, I, you know, I'm over here chuckling, trying not to laugh too loud on this mic because... You personally know how much I hate absolute statements. I, I just, I'm like, never? So you never did that? It was just no chance? 
on this earth that that happened. I, I you know, I struggle with absolute fi- finality, fina- final type statements like that, just because I think there are very rare circumstances where statements like that are appropriate. Yeah, right? for sure. And then I think to your point, you don't ever really know a person, even married. Like, even married, you don't know a person fully. You may know them more than probably anybody else could know a person. But even in that, you still don't fully know a person. It's just because I don't fully know me. So how can you fully know me? Because I'm still learning. So. Thanks. Facts. I mean, this is just like a random thought as I'm like recounting this story to you guys. I'm like, dang, I hear that so much in true crime. And I, I know the person's intentions, right? Like they're just like this, what I know about them. But you know, I'd be like, dang, you just don't, you don't really know though. You don't know, but you, know? you don't. So, okay. All that being said, she told police that she wouldn't go with a stranger. And so the police knew kind of they had an area to, to direct their focus in. And that was actually the bar that she frequented. And so they talk to the manager and the manager tells them, oh, yeah, she was here. Um, She didn't appear to be, you know, drunk or, you know, incapacitated. She was having a good time. But she seemed to have and we didn't see her with anybody, but she seemed to have left in a hurry. She forgot her sweater and her purse. Now, this is back in the 90s. Y'all y'all can't do a whole lot without you purse now we're not doing nothing with that we got to have change to get on a payphone you know what i'm saying (laughs) (laughs) not the payphone we can't do a whole lot so mary ann had to be in a rush so they asked the manager okay do you remember who she went out with and he said no i mean i didn't see her with anybody if she did so the investigation at this part or at this part and point slows completely down that is until august 9th 1990 and the police find out what md so in 1990 as a matter of fact august 9th 1990 carol Beatty and her it was was found so her ex-husband received a call from his two kids and they were like mommy is locked in the bedroom and we can't get in so he gets, he, you know, heads over there to figure out what's happening, what's what's going on. And and to his uh, dismay, he finds that his kids were right. The door was locked. He gets in and he finds her on the bed. And it looked like to him that she had shot herself. So, you know, he's devastated. He's got these kids. He's like, okay, let me call the police and figure out you know, what, what happened. But when the police entered the room, they were able to determine very quickly that this was not a suicide. The shotgun was laid by the victim as if it wasn't even used. So, you know, if it was a suicide, the, the gun is not going to fall next to you laid perfectly as if you didn't even use it posed to the side. So, right. So they were able to determine just based on, not just based on, but part in part based on the positioning of the the gun. Now she was sexually assaulted. They were able to determine that she was sexually assaulted and beaten to death. Uh, There was no evidence of rape though found biologically, but they were able to collect some black hairs 
from the sheet. So, you know, Steph has already told us about these black hairs that they found with Marianne. Now they're finding some more black hairs. And so they collect these two black hairs and they, you know, submit it to into evidence. So there were some similarities between Marianne and, 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 and Carol that were immediately apparent. And the, the one thing that was apparent outside of the hair that was collected was how the bodies were posed. So here we got, again, another woman who has a posed body. And so the Bellevue police, you know, they were like, we need to find out if these hairs are a match or if they're, they're similar. And they come from the, originate from the same person. And in fact, you guessed it, folks, they did. They did. So now there's this common thread between these victims. You have the, the, these women that are laid, positioned, and posed after their death. And the killer is actually crazy enough to leave, or I don't want to say crazy enough. He's not proficient enough to make sure he's not leaving behind evidence because he's leaving behind evidence. So the police go and question Carol's friends and co-workers. And her ex-husband described their relationship as a very good co-parenting relationship. That they know they weren't married, but they raised their kids well and, and things were were fine between them. And she, he talked about how she would like to go to the nightclubs, but other than that, there was nothing much in Carol's background that would suggest that there was somebody that would be out to kill her. So these two crimes kind of just go cold again because they're, they, they're, they are not really able to connect how and who would know both of these women and would want both of these women dead. So fast forward to September 3rd, 1990. King County received a 911 call from a Randy Levine, and he had discovered, uh, he, uh, Randy Levine, I'm sorry, had been, ran, King County received a phone call by a landlord saying that they discovered Randy Levine's body. Now, her body was discovered naked, again, in her bed, and they also found black hair by her body. It's almost like it's a signature of this serial serial killer, Steph, to find these random is is, is he leaving these hairs on purpose? Is it intentional? You know, I, did you were you ever or did you ever watch the true crime series? It's not true crime. It's a crime series, but it's drama. It's scripted. Um Oh, it just escaped me that fast. Yeah. Anyway, what was it about? It's, this, it's about the, a serial killer um, in Miami and uh, Dexter. Oh, yeah. I love Dexter. Dexter, like the second or third season, Dexter meets <laughs> up with his long lost brother. And his brother is a serial killer. And his brother has a ser like a signature. And he leaves certain things, poses the body in certain ways. You know, and I know that's a th that wasn't a thing just in Dexter, right? That's like, the but this very could be, like, you know, very well could be. It could be one of his signature moves. He we know that he's the posing the bodies. Mm -hmm. And maybe he's intentionally leaving these hairs because he's leaving them next to the body. And 
maybe he's doing that because he thinks law enforcement can't find him. Like, you're not going to catch me. You know, I'm the gingerbread man. Yeah. They're going to catch you, my brother. They're going to catch you. Well, they noticed that Randy Levine was missing an antique ring. So this was a nuanced thing. In the previous uh, murders, there was nothing that was obviously taken from the victims. In the first one. Okay. Yeah, so the first, Marianne had nothing taken from her, but um, the the August 1990 victim, Carol, Carol had an heirloom ring. That was also taken from her. So he's taking, yes, so he's taking So jewelry. he's starting to take jewelry at this mm. point. Okay, so we're escalating a little bit. Well, they send Randy's body to the medical examiner, and they determine that blunt force trauma you know, occurred to her head. She was sexually assaulted. Um, and she was tortured. She had 283 tiny punctured dotted wounds on her body. It was, it was the, the investigator noted that it was almost like he was playing tic-tac-toe. Oh no, he quite literally took, played tic-tac-toe. On her body. On her body. Now, this happened, this particular murder happened outside of Bellevue. So, remember, our first couple crimes happened within the Bellevue County. This happened outside of Bellevue. And so, when the investigators get this, they, they're they in King County. They don't know about these murders in Bellevue that could possibly be related. However, there was someone who did know. He remembered seeing these bodies posed and simply seeing the posed body of Randy Levine triggered him to remember these Bellevue bodies. And he called King County police and he let them know like, Hey, this may be related. And so you may want to reach out to Bellevue and just see if you can connect the pieces. Yeah. It was a, just a, it wasn't a random person. It was an EMT provider who went to all of the scenes and he just you know like how we said those signatures putting posing the body you know things being taken hairs being found i mean come on sir come on george come on come on come on so he just is continuing to escalate his behavior and at this point they know we law enforcement knows we have a serial serial killer a likely a serial killer on the loose and he's escalating and it's happening quicker cuz if you if you even just like go through the timeline like initially there there was a little bit of a lull between Marianne and Carol but he goes from Carol to to Randy pre, within a month and so we're, we're escalating. And if you know anything about serial killers, which if you're a true crime fan, we know you do, that's what happens. As they get away with it, they get bolder and bolder, and they start to, they, they can't satiate their need without going out and doing it again. And so that's what's, what's happening. So they funnel all their resources together. They're trying to figure out how can we go catch these, this, uh, this serial killer. And they identify that the women were all doing familiar activities at the time that they were killed. They, you know, they all of them like to go to the club. All of them like to go to nightclubs and hang out. And so they know that they've got to channel their intensity and their efforts in that way. So the hunt for this serial killer intensifies. And that's when George Waterfield Russell was arrested for impersonating an officer. 
So actually, it was he was pulled over because of a traffic tif- ticket, and he immediately, you know, like opened his door and like tucked something underneath his car, like very quickly. And the officer saw it. He didn't immediately go and check it out, um, but he he knew that it was there. And so as he's going through this regular traffic stop, he sees that George has a police scanner in his car. He has a knife. He had two IDs and a loaded handgun. And he noticed that the gun, or he pulled the report that the gun had recently been stolen. So he placed him under arrest for the stolen weapon and impersonating the officer. Now he had a string of criminal or, or of a criminal record that MD told told us about in the beginning. He had, you know, some sexual assaults, some burglaries, but mostly stolen jewelry. Like, sir, I, like, what are you doing with this? I just, you know, some of these cases, I really try to hold. My, I'm trying to hold it, honey, because I'm like, come on, like for real, okay. But anyway, so. Really, the reason why investigators zeroed in on him is not because of those things I just mentioned, but really because he was known to frequent the Bellevue nightclub scene. And, I mean, people knew him, managers at the bar, people at the nightclub. And so they started to put two and two together. Okay, he's a personator officer. He has, you know, petty crimes. He loves jewelry. You know, like, what are we talking about here? You got to be honest with something. And so... um what he would do is when he went into nightclubs, he was a charmer. Like he was that guy. And to be honest with you, he was a handsome guy. Like I could see how women can, you know, possibly want to get down. And you add good looks to a guy who has that talk, honey. Well, they're going to go far period. Right. (laughs) They're going far. He got that. He got those, that language, right? That language. Cause you could be cute, but you don't have that language. And you know, you may fall flat. I'm just saying, but Put two and two together, we got George. And George would often frequent the clubs, and he would have women buy him drinks. You heard right. And then, you know, he would catch them off guard and go back to the house with them and have a good time, right? Well, the investigators, when they brought him down and arrested him for impersonating an officer and having the loaded gun, stolen gun, they asked him, hey, do you know of Marianne? Do you know of... Carol Beatty. Carol Beatty. And he says, um, yeah, no, I don't know Carol Beatty. I'm not familiar with her, but I actually do know Marianne. He said, we weren't together or anything like that. I just remember seeing her. I didn't even speak to her. I just, you know, I saw her out. I've seen her out on occasions. So they asked for mission, asked for him to, you know, search his car. Can we search your car? And he said, uh, yeah, you can search my car, but actually my, my, Cars at my friend's house. Like my actual car is at my friend's house. But you can search my car too. So you can search that car and my car. You can you can search all the cars. cars. Okay. (laughs) So they're like, okay, cool. So they search his car, don't really find anything. They go back to his friend's house who he claims to have borrowed a, a car from. And they ask his friend, you know, have you noticed anything in your car? He said, yeah. Like when he brought my car back, my car stunk to high heaven. It had an indescribable smell. There were several stains. And so I got my car clean. <laughs> I got the same detail because I couldn't handle the stench. Right. And so investigators are like, oh, Dang. God. Like, right. We're not going to be able to 
pin this on him. Pin this on him if indeed something happened. So George was 32 years old at the time. And, you know, they were they they're really just trying to pin something down because he looks like the suspect. But they don't have anything definitive. I mean, and you can suspect all day. But if you don't have anything to pin the, pin the person down with evidence, well, you just don't have a case. So they kind of, even though the guy said, I got my car clean, they, they decided to look at the car anyway. And underneath the upholstery, they found what looked like to be a blood stain. And you would think that is the jackpot, but the stain was actually too degraded. So they couldn't really get a good snapshot of whose blood it belonged to. You know, it just wasn't a good sample and it wouldn't be good to take to court either. Right. Right. And this is, again, 1990. I want us, you know, to just kind of keep that in reference because maybe they could have pulled something in 2023. But in 1990, we're working with the technology that we're working with in the 90s. Right. And so they also, because of that, they say, okay, you know what? We also have some fibers. And if you remember in Mary Ann's case, there were tons of fibers found on her body and they were said to be consistent with carpet. So they gathered those, those, and now those, um, that evidence and they compared it to his friend's car and they were consistent. Jackpot. And they got them. So, they were had enough evidence at this point to obtain a search warrant for Russell's apartment. And in his apartment, they found a gym bag with tons of women's numbers on them. So they contacted some of these women and some of these women say, oh, yeah, we know him. He's a police officer and he's such a good guy. He's a, yeah, he's an undercover cop. And they're like, OK, ma'am, you're in danger. Right, ma'am, do not respond to this guy anymore. Yeah, and he was so charming that even some of the girls that or women that they did call, they were like, oh, I mean, and they would tell him, like, you were in a dangerous situation talking to this guy. They would be like, oh, my gosh, no, no way. Not George. (laughs) He would never. (laughs) So the police were just like, okay, dude, like, literally, your life was safe. Y'all, I want y'all to know Steph is in here impersonating this this accent. You're a kid. Her face was everything. Okay, so so the police are like, okay, so they believe that he was plotting on some of these women and on some of these other women, he wasn't. You know, he might have just been getting their number because, I mean, honestly, this guy could have a normal relationship if he wanted to because it's not like he was a monster. I mean, like in terms of looks and, and charm. And he was a charmer. And, yeah. Like he, he was just... He had the gift of gab. That really is is the best way to describe who he was. And so he knew how to communicate and talk to you and and meet you right where you are. And we all know that kind of person, right? We all, right now, I want you to just think of the one person you know that can just talk to you or talk to anybody about anything and everybody loves them. Right. That's that's this person. Right. That's, That's George. Yes, that's George. So investigators talk to one woman in particular and she tells them that George actually gave her an antique ring for standing her up on a date. And they said, okay, okay. So what, do you still have the ring? And she said, no, I don't. I actually gave it to a friend of mine and I believe that he pawned it in the, you know, in the Bellevue area. I believe he pawned it, but I gave it to him because I suspected that it was stolen. So investigators immediately call up this friend and they're able to track down the ring. And it was indeed Randy Levine's ring that was missing in her room. 
So they could tie him down to Randy. They needed to tie him down to Mary Ann Polwright. So they turned to DNA testing, which was at this time in its infancy. And MD, maybe you can kind of tell us a little bit about this. But because it was in its infancy, it was new. It was new to the court. And so the investigator, as he was expressing what happened during this time, he said, we literally had to dot our I's, cross our T's, because this was brand new to the Washington court as far as evidence is concerned. And so do you know anything about, like, I mean, I know we're, we're so far removed from this, but as far as scientific evidence is concerned, when it's new like that, I mean, is the burden heavier in that case or... I mean, the burden is the same, but it just is difficult, especially then. It is, it's still difficult today, but less so. But it's difficult to to use scientific evidence or evidence that's heavy in like medical or technological terms that lay people just don't know. So for those of you out there that are professionals, like let's say an engineer, and you start talking to somebody that's not an engineer, we are glossing over, right? We don't know what you're saying. What We're are like, you what? talking about? My husband's an engineer. And when he talks to me in tech- technical terms, I'm looking at him like, I, what? Same thing with doctors, right? When they talk in the, the medical medical language, it's it can be above a lay person, a person who doesn't is not versed in medical knowledge. It can be difficult to understand. I say that because... When the experts are are testifying about this evidence, the, it's the jury's job to find the person guilty or innocent based on the facts and the evidence presented. If I am having a difficult time understanding the evidence, right, then I can like just disregard that evidence and not think anything of it because I, I can't understand it anyway. So it's not going to weigh in my in my decision. And so back when DNA was very new, the 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 it wasn't that the burden was higher, it just was difficult on how to present it to a jury so that the jury could understand it, take it in and apply it to the facts of the case, right? And obviously, they did a good job. Yeah, because on January 10th, 1991, George's DNA matched the biological sample on Mary Ann. Now, I want to say we kept saying that for Carol and Randy, that they were sexually assaulted, but not biologically, that means there was no penetration there. And you understand without me telling you, right? I think I made it plain. <laughs> you made it plain. So, I mean, you can still be sexually assaulted and not penetrated. So I, we're all adults. So, um, but because of his DNA sample and all that hair that that baby left. Yes. All of that. At the crime scene. Mm -hmm. They were able to tie him to all of the murders. And um, he was convicted of the three murders. He was sentenced to two consecutive life terms plus 28 years. And one thing that um, a true crime author, Jack Olson, talked about, because he helped the police during this time to, like, catch him. And then, of course, he's a true crime writer, so he had all the the uh, information to be able to write a story about this. But he was a master manipulator, like from the way that he would con these women, charm these women, uh, but even on to, you know, impersonating an officer in his charm. He was a professional listener. Like he would listen to you. And I think that 
that is often like the most charming person, right? Like when you think of people who you're just like, they're so charming. It's because they actually listen to what you have to say. They're not self-absorbed like a lot of us are, <laughs> you know. And so you're like, oh, my gosh. But he used that to his advantage, the fact that he was such a great listener. And even on down to him posing the bodies. Like that, had it not been for investigators, you know, doing their job, because they sometimes just don't do their job outright. That part. You know what I'm saying? Carol Beatty looked like to the naked eye that it was a suicide. And had they ruled it that, we would have never known that he was responsible for it. So he is still alive, and he will die in prison. He Where he needs to be, because obviously he is a sociopath. And he was, he, in 1980, he was diagnosed <laughs> as having multiple personalities. Makes. Antisocial personality. Makes sense. So let's jump into our takeaway. And then, MD, I got some I got some questions for you, honey. We doing okay, like a little bit of, you know. Let's do it. Let's do it. A little something. You know, I think, Steph, my takeaway for this case is just when, when law enforcement comes together and does their job, boy, they can really do something. Facts, bro. You know, and, and, and it's just, it's, it's horrific what George did, right? And there's not much in his background that really, you know, sometimes I think we want to look in, in somebody's background and we want to be able to pinpoint this is what went wrong in your childhood that caused you to be deranged and crazy and off your rocker. And it's, it's comforting to us, right, to know that we can do that because nobody wants to, to think that, you know, serial killers are just walking around here and everything was perfect in their life and they just decided to be a serial killer but there's really like his background yes his parents were were divorced and you know he ended up living with his stepfathers obviously something happened with his mother so there's some trauma there but not that rises to the level that would cause me to say okay that makes sense that makes sense why you decided to have this weird fascination with women and kill them so, you know, it, it's, it's a horrific crime, but boy, am I grateful for law enforcement really rallying and going above and beyond because that, that, that Emmy that you said ended up calling King County and saying, hey, I was just at two other bodies that were posed. You, you may want to look into this. These are things that that's not necessarily something he has to do. But he did it. And because he did it, they were able to combine their efforts to go in and solve this case. Now, that's my first take. Well, I only have one more step. Oh, it's okay. Because I want to point out for our listeners, in case we didn't make it clear just in the telling, George is black. And the victims were white. And so why am I saying that? Because although we cover cases on we cover cases here on Murder in the Black where the victims are black and, and the the killer is black, right? I I led with my takeaway being, boy, does is it amazing when law enforcement comes together they can solve a crime. And here we have three white women. I'm finna go. And boy, they came together to solve this crime. And we are we are one race. We are the human race. And we all have value and our lives all have value and so whether you're white black or other 
there's value in that. And law enforcement should come together to do the job that they've been called to do because we see that when they do, they can they, they can funnel their resources together and make it happen. That's my takeaway. I mean, yeah. I mean, I feel all the shade, and I'm here for it. Um, yeah, you know, I just think that, uh, yeah, I co-signed all of that. I don't even really think I have one other than that, you know, we have covered three serial killers here on Murder in the Black, and every one, I am shocked. <laughs> I, am, I am still like, dang. And it's because, the, it's because our culture... You know, for those of us that are not black listening, because we, we have our white uh, listeners and we love y'all. You know, for those that are not in our culture, we are raised to believe that serial killers, like black people are traditionally not serial killers. Not that, that they don't exist, because obviously, very obviously. Clearly. They exist. But I just think we know less about them. And I think that's probably, Steph, indicative of the fact that we don't really get our crimes covered in main media so we're we're missing out on these stories of (laughs) of 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 the black people being being serial killers but steph and you guys are finding them so you know come on yes and so thank you i i I was sitting up here as md was doing her takeaways trying to like going through our messages and combing through who was it that sent me these case suggestions but you know who you are i can't find it we get a lot of dms i just can't find it but this and I found it to do this case and that's all that matters and you know who you are so big shout out to you um let's quickly jump into our polls and then we're gonna move on to like a fun holiday get to know us a little better section of our show since we're at the end um so I asked you guys about last week's case George Moore you guys I asked you guys to give me advice or give advice to someone who needs to leave a relationship but doesn't want to. And Stephanie said, mental, physical, verbal abuse, leave scars. Care more about yourself. If you have kids, them too. Life is sometimes hard. Staying alive is harder. Make a safe plan and get out. Chantel said, honey, you have to be fed up. You have to want to leave. Your life and happiness are more important. Don't insa- don't sacrifice it for anyone. Sean said, emotional abuse is still abuse. Defend yourself however you see fit. <laughs> I feel you, Sean. Like, seriously, I see you. I see you, and I hear you, and I feel you. So, I see you. Yeah, thanks, thanks, y'all, for participating in that. I think we all have had a friend, or maybe even it has been our own personal narrative where we are, like, trying to figure out how to get out of a relationship, and we might not even want to go, because sometimes that's that's the story, but I think it's important to, you know, chunk that deuce when it's time, you know what I mean? So, I have a couple of questions, and I'm just going to do, like, two. I'm not going to hold y'all, you know, you got to get... If you have last-minute shopping to do, God bless you. Well, if you have last-minute shopping to do, listen to us while you're shopping. Go and put them AirPods. And shop. Right, because that's the right thing to do. So let's get into it. Now, MD, how do you balance the need to keep your audience engaged and entertained with the gravity and sensitivity of the crime stories we cover here on Murder in the Black? I, 
that's a really great question. And I want y'all to know she did not prepare me for these questions. I am shooting off the hip with my answer. But I, for me, I think we balance it together, right? And I know that you cover cases alone sometimes. And I've covered one or two, not many. But it's so much easier to keep listeners engaged when we have our dynamic working, when we are able to stop and pause and have those conversations or laugh at the joke or when I see her looking a certain way, you know, that maybe you can't see it, but I want y'all to feel it. So it's it's being able to understand that these are very sensitive cases because somebody died. And ultimately, that is just horrific. I mean, no matter what, like I said, we're the human race and all I, all of our lives matter at, you know, we have value and we matter to somebody. And so you want to be sensitive enough to, to care about that, but bring awareness at the same time. And in a way that keeps you engaged. And I think our banter is, is what keeps the audience engaged. Yeah, for sure. What about you? Um, you know, I think I just, I think I try to, I think this show for sure has helped me to not be so judgmental when it comes to, you know, people and their choices. Because I think prior to, um, I would, you know, and I still do, I mean, you know, I'm just being real. I can look at a case or I can see a case, read a case, and I'm like, what were you thinking? <laughs> but I think if you, this podcast has helped me realize that we all go through some things and sometimes decisions in that moment make sense. Even if overall it led to like maybe a bad decision or a consequence, maybe it made sense in that time. And if you just try to take a second to try to put yourself in that person's shoes for just a moment and just say, dang, I get it. I get why you did that, right? So I try to be sensitive to that because I think sometimes we can be overly harsh because it's like, I would never. And you probably would just like Adam and Eve in the garden. You know what I'm saying? You would have done it too. Okay. Right, right. So, I mean, I think it's ma- definitely made me more conscientious um, to be able to be sensitive in telling the stories that we tell here. So, this is a question that I actually um, kind of got from a, a scripted show about true crime. But I think it's so important to talk about this because... True crime has become so massively popular. I mean, it's always been a thing as MD and I have talked about how we got our start doing it. Um, Watching Lifetime, watching Snap, watching all the things. It's always been a thing. But I think it's probably more popular than any other time just because we have so many outlets to media now. We got podcasts, we got YouTube, all the things. So can you discuss the ways you navigate or we navigate the responsibility of telling true crime stories while ensuring that our podcast does not come across as exploiting personal tragedies for entertainment? For sure, because I think that it in this true crime era that we're in and true crime has evolved right over over time and I want to specifically talk about it as it relates to the case we just covered with George because the show that we watched to learn about that case was one of the first pioneers of of true crime case true crime tv and it is dry I mean it is so dry it is the it is there it is no entertainment value 
whatsoever in the telling of that story the way that we told it. If you were to go and watch that, you would you probably couldn't make it through the first 10 minutes because they they are very much telling the scientific aspect of it. They're very much walking you through meticulously walking you through that case as as if they were you know not as if they were the investigator and they're retelling the case and they did a a hell of a job right but if you're not really really into true crime especially the the beginnings of true crime that be and you kind of came in later and you are more of a podcaster more of a a first 48er you know it's hard to watch those kinds of cases but it's I think that can be really boring to but they and so they have to figure out how can we and I think we do too we have to figure out how do we tell this story because we want you to know about it because we want you to either walk away knowing that things like this happen and so be on be on guard be alert or the like the Charmaine case that we covered Charmaine case that we covered hey this is actually happening right now and you may know somebody that knows somebody that knows something and so keep your ears open and your eyes alert to what you may know that could potentially help this mother solve this case. So you have to tell it in a way that keeps you engaged to want to hear about it and to learn about it while simultaneously, you know, giving you the facts of the case. And I think when it's too dry, then you disengage. But then when you are exploitive in all of it and you're just kind of poking fun and making you know like making jest at the the case and like, I would never and you get those kind of comments I think that's where you you can go too far to the left so I, here at Murder in the Black we're trying to figure out how do we both be sensitive to the case that we're talking about and the fact that this it, this person has a family even how Steph today in the case with Charmaine refused to say the name of the best friend I think those are little minor things that we try to do to say we don't know I mean we don't know if that best friend is guilty and so we don't want to put his name on front street knowing how people can be behind these these phones and these screens and they can attack and ruin a person and that person didn't wasn't even ultimately responsible and then now you've ruined that person and that person you know loses their life behind something that wasn't their fault so those kinds of sensitivities is what we do but at the same time trying to make it like a conversation where you're joining your girlfriend yeah i mean i think that's that's i feel like that has been our niche like our our thing um i want you to feel like we just you know we're sitting down talking i mean i literally had a client um y'all know i do here i had a client and she um we were talking about our, our love for true crime. She has no idea that I have a podcast. And I told her about this one case that I'm about to drop for y'all on our uh, on our paid subscription. And she was just like, girl, yes. I mean, we were going back and forth. You would think she was MD. The way we were just like bouncing things off of each other as I'm midway going through this story, forgetting names, doing what my mama does when she's telling the <laughs> right, right. lie about a book. Okay, so we just gonna call her Mary because I can't remember right, her, I can't name, remember her right name right now. now so she married. But follow me. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just, I love, mommy. We follow. yeah, and I feel like that is the way that we approach the entertainment part. And we might, you know, make crack jokes on ourselves or about, you know, the craziness of the situation. But we definitely do try to do it in a respectful way because I do think we live in this age where everybody wants to make a comedy out of everything. And unfortunately, like, this is not a situation that 
is comical like because somebody did lose their life so um yeah I thought that was just a really cool question uh last question is how do you approach cases that may have a significant impact which I think we kind of covered but um but what I want to target is the large social and systemic issues how do you feel like we approach those cases and how do we kind of dole out the responsibility of raising awareness on those issues? Well, I think we are very straightforward. I did it today. You know, I'm going to acknowledge when things are great and you did an amazing job. And I'm going to acknowledge that part of the reason you did an amazing job is, is, you know, rooted in who the victim was. And I think we cannot shy away from having those hard conversations because shying away from those hard conversations led us to where we are today. It's, yeah, it's no longer um, overt racism. It's covert racism. And it's real and it happens. And it's not even, it's oftentimes shrouded in, you know, subliminal. You don't even recognize you're doing it. You don't even know that it's your thoughts and, and, you know, so I think that the way that you handle it, the way that we've handled it here on this, this, uh, platform is to just call it out, call a spade a spade, what we see it to be, what we feel it to be as black women and what we know it to be as, you know, black people in America. And so you can't shy away from it, but then also you got to acknowledge the good. And I think that that's oftentimes where we can, as a culture, and American culture can go wrong. We will just put all our emphasis on the bad and, and to the point where you're like, all police officers are bad. Well, that is not true, right? Like there are some amazing, and we have covered stories where there were some amazing officers that rallied and did wonderful things both in and out of the black community. And that those people deserve to be praised, they deserve to be highlighted. And listen, I love police officers because I need them. They do some good things. Now, are there some bad seeds? Absolutely, but are there bad seeds in every profession? Absolutely. Do Should we call out the bad seeds in every profession? Absolutely, and that's what we try to do here on this show is just call out those bad seeds, identify them. And for those of you who are not our black listeners listening, you know, we want you to be aware too. And how else will you be aware if you don't, if we don't tell you? You know, right now I'm working a case at my job and it's, it involves the, the, the plaintiff is, is white but she's saying that a black person discriminated against her, right? And the the partner on the case with me is black and I'm black, but the the, the main associate, because I'm the second tier associate, the main associate is white. And I love that we get to have open dialogue with her and she doesn't shy away from it. She's not uncomfortable by it. She'll tell you, well, I'm not really sure if that's what this may mean. You know, it's an open dialogue where even though there may be, and I'm sure there's moments of, discomfort for her but even even in the discomfort she welcomes it because she's she knows she's growing and that's what we do here it's gonna be uncomfortable sometimes hearing some of the things we say but we say it because we want you to grow and we want to learn from you as well so that's why we have that open forum yeah for sure I think I think the only way to really have effective change is to have uncomfortable conversations because not trying to be funny but 
<laughs> the caterpillar was once uncomfortable too before he became a butterfly. I know that sounds well, very childish. There you go. I'm just saying it's the truth. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think you know the embodiment of what we try to do here is, and the reason why we did, why we're doing this podcast and this, and decided to start it is because of awareness purposes. That is our ultimate goal here is to reach everyone to let them know that yeah true crimes happen in our community and we absolutely need the same justice that everyone should get right so that's that um md anything you want to say merry christmas happy holidays all the things i'm a i'm a refrain from singing because every time you say merry christmas I mean, happy I, holidays I just, can you just, just talk song. straight can you just i'm just gonna talk merry christmas to all of you out there i hope you have a wonderful wonderful fun field relaxing loving holiday absolutely y'all be sh- be looking out because we're still going to come out with an episode on thursday because that's not christmas anymore so we will be taking a break but we'll give you guys all those details next week uh merry Christ- merry christmas happy holidays um be safe above everything else okay be safe take care of yourself and we will see you guys next week mm-hmm.